0: Ah, I love that excited murmur on the first day of a conference, the anticipation, the excitement, catching up with old colleagues and making new ones, wondering if you have enough time to pop out and grab that fresh mug of coffee Good before, th- morning, oh, folks. I guess not.
1: So if everyone could take a seat and we'll kick off today's session, for those of you that have arrived this morning, welcome to Pop Group, my name is-
0: Hello and welcome to a very special and slightly longer episode of the Heredity Podcast, I'm your host, James Bergen. And fresh and early, on the 3rd of January, I leapt into a car with our Editor-in-Chief, Professor Barbara Mabel, and our Editorial Assistant, Sandra Hüttenbügel, to make the six-hour drive down south to Oxford Brookes University, in order to attend the 52nd Annual Population Genetics Group Forum. Held every year, just before or just after the winter break, this is the premier population genetics conference in the UK, with the strength and reputation to draw on researchers from across the globe. And, of course... Being such an important fixture in the UK genetic circuit, both Heredity and the Genetic Society attend and sponsor elements of the meeting. Personally, my first pop group was the 48th meeting in Sheffield. Held in the winter of 2015, it was the first proper professional conference I attended as a PhD student. And it sort of blew my mind. I think it was the first time I realised just how much I had to learn, and just how much I was going to learn over the coming years. However, as I said, the honour of hosting this year's meeting fell on Oxford Brooks. And that person you heard at the top of the episode? She was one of the main organisers.
1: My name is Ravinda Kanda. I'm a senior lecturer here at Oxford Brookes University and also one of the organizers of this year's Population Genetics Group Conference. So affectionately referred to as Pop Group, this is the 52nd year that this conference has been running. And surprisingly, we actually have two delegates here that attended the very first Pop Group many, many years ago. It's one of those conferences that keeps people coming back for more. Every year it grows in size, And it's a really friendly, informal atmosphere. Many of the senior people here would have given their first talk at Pop Group as
0: students. So it's a nice way to kind of cut your teeth. Of course, that makes it all sound lovely. And for those of us attending, it was. But actually hosting this meeting takes a lot of time, effort and an army of volunteers. So why did Ravinda want to take on this responsibility?
1: So I've been going to this conference personally for about 20 years and thought that it might be fun to organise one. Uh, it's been an experience as it keeps growing the challenges grow with it as well but we've got a great venue here at Brooks and it's been a fantastic experience. Our delegates as I mentioned previously have been regulars, most of them, so it's like meeting up with old friends and family when you get back from New Year's after the Christmas break as well and the party just continues with some
0: very cool science. And some very cool science was had indeed. From the most theoretical of theories to the most applied of applications, Pop Group covers the breadth of population genetics, and with 41 posters and over 40 hours of contributed talks running in three parallel sessions, Popgroup provides more than any one person could possibly ask for. Unfortunately, this means that no one person could ever actually experience the whole thing, and no podcast can cover it all either. So instead, we're just going to be bringing you some of the best bits, starting with the plenary talks. The plenaries kicked off each day of the conference, and were given by four prominent invited speakers. Importantly, these talks covered the breadth of the topics on offer at Pop Group, and give an opportunity for the entire conference to gather and share in a collective intellectual experience. So, kick back, relax, and settle in to hear about the four biggest Pop Group talks from the very plenary speakers who gave them.
2: My name is Günter Wagner, I'm a professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University. I work on uh, evolution of evolvability. Evolvability is the ability of the genotype to produce potentially adaptive mutations. And that evolvability depends on some variational properties of the genome, like Tation rate, uh, effect size, and pleiotropic effects, and uh, things like that. Now, the big question is whether natural selection is able to shape the genome to increase or improve uh, evolvability in particular with respect to um, effect size uh, and pleiotropic effects. So, for instance, one possibility would be whether directional selection can increase the effect size and thereby accelerate evolution, and whether stabilizing selection can decrease the mutational effect size and thereby lead to what's known as canalization. Now, the surprising result is that it turns out that the effect of natural selection is not determined by the nature of natural selection, but by the epistatic effects that exist before selection even starts, which means that the outcome is not determined by selection, but actually by the physiology and development of the organism. And thereby, natural selection is not leading to an adaptive outcome, but to a contingent outcome that depends on the physiology of the organism. Now, that is interesting because it leads us to understand how much development and physiology as well as population genetics interact in shaping the outcome of evolution.
3: Hi, I'm Chris Jiggins from the University of Cambridge. I'm professor of evolutionary biology. So I've been studying these brightly coloured South American butterflies called Heliconius for many years, and we're excited about the connections between the changes in the genes and the evolution of the wing patterns. And so what we've shown is that a small number of genes of large effect kind of control this amazing diversity of wing patterns that we see across these butterflies. And we can make new combinations of wing patterns by shuffling those genes into new combinations. So, you know, it's a sort of a a recycling of genetic variation effectively by evolution, using old variants and putting them into new combinations to make new diversity. We're also studying behavior, and we sort of think that there might be some evidence that similar processes are happening in behavior. Surprisingly, the mating preferences of these butterflies are also controlled by a small number of genes of fairly large effect. And we're now also using uh, this new technology CRISPR to actually genetically manipulate the butterflies' genomes and sort of play God with their wing patterns. And so we can test hypotheses uh, more explicitly in a way that was never possible years ago. So it's exciting times.
4: Hi, I'm Tammy Lieberman. I'm an assistant professor at MIT in Boston, Massachusetts. Today I gave a a plenary talk about bacterial evolution in the microbiome. You know, it turns out that if you just do a simple back of the envelope calculation, there is a ridiculous potential for evolution in our bodies every day with over a billion de novo mutations being created within each person's microbiome each day. And of course that diversity is added to with horizontal gene transfer and whatnot. So you know, the potential for evolution and adaptation in our microbiomes really hasn't been explored very much. And we've been exploring questions related to how rapid is evolution within us and what can we learn about the bacteria themselves by studying their evolution, right? So on one hand, you know, I'm interested in using bacterial evolution to better understand these fundamental questions about the microbiome, uh, transmission, genes that are important to selection, uh, niche ranges, sort of using genomic and evolutionary tools to understand these questions that are going to help us get a grasp on this large data of the microbiome. But on the other hand, I also sort of introduced the idea that that maybe actually if we want to understand how rapid evolution or the potential for rapid evolution in complex ecosystems, we need to actually just go in and start studying it, right, Uh, rather than trying to model it or, or setting up... Uh, beautiful microcosms, really in in, in more complex communities, what is the range of behaviors you actually see in the real world? And and so we're beginning, you know, the data and the tools are there now to begin to address these questions. So I talked about two kind of areas of research, and uh, one is about the gut microbiome, and one is the skin microbiome. And so the take-home message from the gut microbiome talk was that uh, Bacteroides fragilis is, in fact, rapidly adapting within individual people with these genes that are sitting in the outer membrane, uh, that are generally importers of complex polysaccharides, seem to be changing really rapidly within individual people, with different sublineages derived from the same single colonizing cell getting different but similar mutations in the same gene. And we don't know yet what's driving these selective forces. But but this potential for adaptation really needs to be reconciled with long-term signatures of purifying selection and the fact that these bacteria have been living within us for very long periods of time. Uh, you know, why are there still this potential for adaptation? And then on the other hand, another big area of research that, that my lab is now working on is that the facial skin microbiome. And what we have discovered is that two of these bacteria that live within your pores are, in fact, spatially segregated islands. And we're trying to now go forward and understand you know, how we can use Uh, these as models of evolution, but moreover, how this is going to have implications for microbiome engineering and
5: understanding the natural ecology of the microbiome. My name is Pluny Pennings. If I say it in my own language, it would be Pluny Pennings. I'm an assistant professor at San Francisco State University. So I'm going to be talking tomorrow about my work together with Allison Feeder, who's a postdoc at uh, UC Berkeley. And we're working on trying to understand the history of drug resistance evolution in HIV. In the 1980s, when people first started treating HIV patients, the virus would become drug resistant very quickly, like within a couple of weeks. And then in the 1990s, more drugs became available and people started combining drugs first in cocktails of two drugs and then cocktails of three drugs, and things got better. The virus became more slowly evolving. So you know, maybe instead of becoming drug-resistant after a couple of weeks, it would maybe take months or years. And nowadays, treatments are really good and really successful, and the virus hardly ever becomes drug-resistant anymore. And so that's a huge success story. But I'm going to argue tomorrow that we don't really understand how we got where we are. Because in the middle of the 1990s, when the three drug cocktails got introduced, it had a huge effect on the health of people who were treated. People uh, suddenly started surviving, even though they had HIV, instead of dying. So that was a huge effect. And many evolutionary biologists think that that was also the time when drug resistance evolution stopped happening, because intuitively it makes a lot of sense if you treat with three drugs, it should become really hard for the virus to become drug resistant, because the idea is that with three drugs, the virus would need three mutations to become drug resistant. And without really looking at the data, we sort of assumed that the mid 1990s was like the time where drug resistance in HIV no longer was a problem. But if you actually look at the data, it's not the case at all. These early three drug cocktails, they still allowed for a lot of evolution of drug resistance in HIV. And only very slowly did drug resistance evolution slow down so much that it is now no longer a problem. And so I want to understand how we solved that problem. If the three drug cocktails didn't solve it, what did solve it?
0: These talks really were some of the highlights of this conference. And remember when Ravinda said that a lot of people come back year on year from their days as a student? Well, Chris Jiggins is one of those folk.
3: Sure, yeah, I'm very fond of Pop Group. It's one of my favourite meetings. I sort of grew up with it as a PhD student if I wasn't in field work in somewhere exotic in South America. So um, a lot of old friends uh, are here every year and I, I love coming back and it's always exciting science but also a good social event just after Christmas as well. So I, I have a, I'm very fond memories of Pop Group over the years. It's you know a great honour to be invited back to give a plenary talk, so uh, I was a bit nervous about it, but I, it's done now so I can hang out in the bar and feel good about myself. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. There is quite a lot of socialising at this conference as well.
3: And for the other three plenaries, this
0: was actually their first time attending the conference. So I wanted to hear from a couple of them to find out what their first impressions of it were.
5: I think it's a wonderful conference. What I understand is that a lot of people come to this conference every year or every other year. And so a lot of people know each other. A lot of people have fond memories of coming here as a student and giving their first talk. And now they're much more senior and they still present their work here or their students will present their work. And so it it seems to me that it's really a community of people who come together to talk about research, which I think is very cool.
2: Surprisingly, during the decades when I was really doing uh, population genetic work, I never visited this group, and so I'm quite honored to be here and, and happy, and it's a really good and well-run uh, meeting. It was also a, a great opportunity for me to summarize for the pop uh, gen community uh, many decades of work that we have done, and so I'm very happy to be here. And that's sort of a running theme
0: at pop Group. You really can't dampen the spirits of the researchers here. As everyone from world-renowned researchers down to the students who are just starting out on their academic journeys come to share and hash out ideas on population genetics as equals.
1: And on that note, I think it's time
0: to get over to the prizes. Oh, right you are, Avinda. See, I said we come together as equals, but we're still scientists, and we're still competing to have the best ideas. And like many conferences, PopGrip has student prizes for the best student talk and poster. And I could tell you who won, but I didn't win any prizes for presentation. So I'll hand over to the winners themselves, starting with the man who was voted to have the
6: best talk. Hello, my name is Kamil. I work in Lausanne. I'm doing my PhD and I study asexuality in stig insects. I have a talk which has two different parts. I first collected uh, tons of asexual genomes because I thought that maybe it's not a good idea to look at a single lineage when we're assessing some sort of genomic features where we're studying a general pattern of population genetics. We cannot look at a single lineage. So I made this huge collection of 24 asexual genomes. But then I realized that the tools that are out there are, let's say, having hard times to analyze all these weird ploidies and uh, and, and obscure heterozygocities. So I presented what I found in these 24 genomes, but in the very, very end, because I had some minutes left, I also presented the the tool I have developed to to actually look at the genome structure. So uh, I think people liked the enthusiasm I gave in the the smudge plots. This is how I call it. (laughs) And I think Camille was hit with the same sort of feeling we all get when we bag that first win. That's a really strange feeling. I, I had a bunch of cases where I really thought I deserved a prize. And uh, this was another one of the cases. <laughs> so, Let's say, the moment I didn't see it coming, then it uh, hit me, so I was really surprised. And as this was Camille's first
0: pop group, I guess we can test the hypothesis. If pop group bags them when they're students, will they keep coming
6: back? I enjoy the atmosphere of the conference a lot. It's very clear how helpful people are here, that they are trying to figure out what's going on, which is a very nice thing. It makes me want to do science, actually.
0: Yeah, I think he'll be back. And hopefully, so too will our poster prize winner.
7: I'm Laura. I am a PhD student in the University of Leeds. I'm working with Simon Goodman and I'm doing some uh, conservation genetics and population structure work with bats from the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. And while we were sampling we got a lot of nice interesting and creepy ectoparasites from them and it was a very good set. There is no information at all about them so we thought it was really really interesting to find out what is going on when with them. And that's what my poster is about. Right now just is the first step. We're trying to account the diversity of these ectoparasites groups. I'm processing for now only three groups of ectoparasites, which are flies, uh, ticks and bugs, bed bugs, but bad bugs. (laughs) And we found out a lot of novel uh, lineages among the samples we got, which is great and also challenging.
0: Now, obviously, you can't see how good Laura's poster was, so I asked her to explain why she thinks she won.
7: Honestly, I think it's because of the pictures of the cute bats and the creepy ectoparasites. And because I have these trees showing novel cryptic lineages of these ectoparasites in all of the groups, hopefully it's, it's also that and not only the, the nice cool pictures, but yeah, I think I think it was for that.
0: They were pretty awesome pictures. Those ectoparasites look terrifying. But Laura's research was also fascinating, and I hope she'll come back next year and tell us how it's progressed. But I'm afraid that's basically it for a pop group special. I've tried to bring you the highlights of the conference, but obviously there's only so much I can fit into a podcast. And the only real way for you to experience everything that's on offer is to come and join us for the next one, pop group 53, which is gonna be held in Leicester. But before we head off, I want to share my best bit, if you'll allow me a bit of personal indulgence. You see, as much as I loved the science on offer, perhaps the most satisfying part of this conference was finally getting to meet Anna Muir. You see, Anna finished her PhD and left the University of Glasgow about two or three months before I arrived and started mine. What's more, we shared a supervisor in the form of Heredity's own editor-in-chief, Barbara Mabel. So for years we've both been told that we know each other, and now we finally do. But there's more to this story. You see, another one of Barbara's students was also there, Elizabeth Middle, who gave a great talk just days after submitting her PhD thesis. and Anna. Well, she was there with some of her very own PhD students. That's right, three lab generations of scientists. And this idea kind of caught on around the conference as people tried to work out how many generations their scientific line went back. Turns out, there are a lot of academic families at Pop Group, which, frankly, is one of its strengths. Anyway, that's it for today's Pop Group special. Next time, we'll be back to our usual format, diving back into the pages of Heredity to explore some of the more amazing research that's been published there. But until then, I'm James Bergen, and this has been the Heredity Podcast. Tune in next time.